You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this morning is Psalm 31. It's a psalm in which David speaks of his distress, a distress which our Lord Jesus Christ takes upon himself, but also speaks of the confidence that David finds in his father. Confidence also completed in the confidence expressed on the cross by Jesus Christ himself. And so we read Psalm 31 this morning. For the director of music, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me, since you are my rock and my fortress. For the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love. For you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for in I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed with anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction, and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them, as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and those who pursue me. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you. And let the wicked be put to shame and lie silent in the grave. Let their lying lips be silenced. For with pride and contempt, They speak arrogantly against the righteous. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling place, you keep them safe from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was besieged in a city. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 23, the verses 44 through 49. The account in the Gospel of Luke of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was now about the sixth hour, 
and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we live in a time, in a culture, that we are exposed to a lot of violence. We live in a, a culture of violence. It's all around us. It's, it's in the television that we watch. It's in the movies that play. It's in the video games. It's on the front page of the newspaper. It's on your nightly newscast. Violent images pictures, videos, and themes are all around us. And it's well known that exposure to violence, to violent images, causes decreased sensitivity to it. The more violence you see, the less you're struck by violence when you see it. And so as we come to our text today, in our current culture on this Good Friday, as we come to the reality of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, we may be in danger of being unaffected by it. We may read about what happened to our Lord as He was there on the cross and as Luke recounts it for us. And we may find ourselves in danger of simply passing over it. And many in our time react against that, in fact, and, and instead of, of, of allowing this to not catch our attention, they want to dramatize it. They want to show us the horror of it. They want to make us relive the pain, draw our empathy toward the suffering servant on the cross. And you know how that's done in, in images, in pictures, in statues in movies, and books today. But yet in our text that's before us this morning, the picture that Luke paints is, it's not gory in its details at all. It, it's stark in how short and precise and concise it is. This is written by Luke. Luke's a doctor. Luke knows a thing about blood and gore. He could have described this account in every painstaking medical detail, drawing out the pain of our Lord's experience, but he doesn't. Instead, he describes Jesus' death briefly, shortly, and succinctly. Now, this is not at all so that we might pass over the matter quickly, by no means. But rather, Luke knows, as every good writer knows, that the more important and significant a topic is, 
the more sober and subdued you become about it. Luke is bringing the impact of our Lord's death as he speaks soberly, reservedly about it. And so in just a few lines, Luke describes the moment of Christ's death. But those lines contain great significance because Luke is describing the sacrifice of God for those who sin against him. And that's our theme this morning. As we look at the account of our Lord's death from the Gospel of Luke, we see the sacrifice of God for those who sin against him. And so this morning, let's pause at the foot of the cross and consider what our Lord has done for us there. Well, consider first the events that surround his death. Luke records two events, the darkness that was over the land for three hours and the tearing of the curtain in two. None of these events are are explained or the significance of these events is not explained for us, but understanding God's word in its totality, the significance becomes clear for us. The first event that Luke describes is the darkness that comes over the land. Now, people in those days, they they accounted for time from the time when the sun rose. So probably this time of the year, the sun would have been rising around six o'clock in the morning. And so this time of darkness is from high noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. It's the time of day in which the sun on that hot Middle Eastern land should have been bearing down in all of its heat. But instead, it was gone. Luke says the sun stopped shining. It was cut off. It disappeared. It was cloaked for all those living in Israel. And in Jerusalem in particular. At that time of the day, there was only darkness. Now Luke doesn't mention why this darkness came. What was significant about it? In fact, none of the New Testament writers mention this darkness. They don't explain it for us. What was it about this darkness that's significant? Is it because, as Jesus had said when he was arrested on the Mount of Olives, he had told that band of of chief priests and elders and soldiers who had come to arrest him, he said, this is your hour when darkness reigns. Darkness is the time when wicked men operate. It's when thieves operate. It's when wickedness is carried on in our world today as well. Under the cloak of darkness is where wicked men go about their business, where they plot their schemes and carry out their plans. Now seems to be what's happening as the innocent Christ is hanging on the cross. That's what it must have seemed like, that this is what the darkness is. These men are so wicked that the sun cannot even shine on on the plans that they are carrying out as they hang the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But there is, in fact, much more behind this darkness than the deeds of wicked men. 
In fact, what lies behind this darkness is not the deeds of wicked men. They're not a control of the shining of the sun. But what lies behind this darkness are the deeds of God. Darkness, for the prophets of the Old Testament, was a sign of God's judgment and wrath On the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, the earth would become dark because God's grace would be taken away and all that would be left would be darkness and wrath and destruction. The prophet Joel calls the day of the Lord a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. And so what has descended over the land of Israel, what has descended over the cross of Jesus Christ in this darkness is not the wicked plans of men, but the righteous judgment of God. This is not the evil plans of men taking reign. This is the holy and just God carrying out his wrath and punishment. The punishment that he had promised in the Old Testament to all those who would sin against him and who would not find refuge in his grace. Now this picture of a holy, just God who punishes sin, who destroys the wicked, this is too much for many people today. This is too much for the culture that we live in. Though we live in a culture of violence, yet to say that God would carry out violence against wicked people, no, can have nothing to do with that. Many today cringe when they hear about this characteristic of God and they say, that cannot be, that is not my God. Many Liberal theologians explaining this text say, this cannot be the, the, the righteous judgment of God. God has no righteous judgment. He cannot be like that. But he is. And God's word is very clear about his justice. On the other hand, others seem to, to glory in this, this character of God. God is a righteous God, they would say. He, he goes out like a warrior and he smashes all his enemies. He pours out his wrath on them and he slays them left, right, and center. That's the God we serve and that's the God we love and you better watch out because that's the God who's going to come and get you. They're more, they're not prone to shrink away from this God, but to cheer him on and urge him to give more, give more justice to all those who deserve it. But we need to be careful, brothers and sisters. Because behind this darkness certainly is the God who lives and reigns forever. The God who is holy and just and avenging. But who is he pouring out his wrath upon? Who is the one who is experiencing this righteous and powerful judgment? Is it being poured out on his enemies as he slays them right, left, and center? The one experiencing his judgment is none other than his one and only son. His beloved son. 
This judgment is being realized by none other than an innocent man who is the son of God, Jesus. And that cross on which he hung was the most brutal and torturous way to die. The Romans feared it. The Jews feared it. Everyone in the world feared crucifixion. It was not only agonizingly painful, but it was utterly shameful. And God not only subjected him to that, but he hung him up on a cross, scorned and shamed by everyone on earth. And then he poured out his wrath upon him, turning away his love and his mercy. All of the anger and the judgment that the prophets had spoken about in the Old Testament that comes upon those who sin against God came upon Jesus Christ. Focused upon him. Why? Jesus was innocent. He didn't deserve this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken him? Luke tells us in the next verse, why did Jesus die? Why did that righteous one, the suffering servant, have to die? It was to make atonement for the sins of God's people. It was to bear and to pay the penalty for our sins. Luke speaks about that when he speaks about the tearing of the curtain. That curtain became front and center in the life of every Israelite in one day every year. For the rest of those days, that curtain separated God in the most holy place from even the holy place where only the priests were allowed to go to the rest of the Israelites who could assemble outside in the court and outside the temple. And on one day of the year, that curtain was allowed to be entered. That day was the Day of Atonement, the most sacred and special day of the whole year for God's people. On that day, the high priest, among other things, would select two goats. On one goat, he would place his hands, and that would trans- that would signify the transfer of the sins of the people, represented by the high priest, onto that goat. And then they would drive that goat out into the wilderness. Which would show that the sin and the guilt of those sins was being taken by the goat away from the people of God. And then they would take the other goat and they would sacrifice it as a sin offering to the Lord. The other goat would give up his life. As a substitute for the life of God's people. They would recognize before God that they deserve death for their sins. But that that goat was bearing the penalty for them. And then the high priest would take the blood of that goat. And he would move the curtain to the most holy place. And he would present that blood before the ark of God. Before the presence of God himself. He would present, therefore, the blood of the people in the goat who had died for their sake. So that God would accept that blood. Accept the sacrifice. And not carry out his judgment against his people. 
Year after year, for hundreds of years, this atonement was made because every one of those Israelites had sinned. And because this sin was so serious that it deserved death, and that the people were completely unable to do anything about it for themselves, all they could do was offer this sacrifice year after year and count on the mercy of God who had provided this way for them. Well, during those three hours when darkness covered the land, God poured out his wrath on the ultimate lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. God poured out the punishment that should have been ours. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our sins were laid on Him, just like that goat, and He died for them. And when the work was done, God tore that curtain in two. Because no longer was that curtain needed. The ultimate sacrifice had been made. No other sacrifices were necessary. And in fact, the ultimate sacrifice had been made so that the way to God could be opened. That separation that the curtain showed was no longer needed. God had removed the barrier between himself and his people. Sin had been paid for. You didn't need a goat. You didn't need a high priest. You didn't need a curtain. You didn't need an ark. You didn't need a temple. Now you could come to God through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. Because he died on the cross. He went through the curtain as the great high priest and he offered his life before God the Father as the perfect and the ultimate sacrifice. That's what was happening as God poured out his wrath on the cross. Why? Why was God doing that? Why would Jesus have to bear that for us? For you? For your sins? For my sins? For our sins? For the sins of all those who will believe in him? He experienced the rejection of God, hell, the wrath of God against our wickedness, sinfulness, and rebellion. We deserved it in every way. But he suffered it. And he did it. According to the plan of God the Father. And in doing this, he expressed his confidence in God. In the darkness of that afternoon on the Friday before the Passover meal, that feast that celebrated God's love and salvation that he'd given his people, that final sacrifice hung there on the cross. The righteous, the suffering servant, the man of sorrows of Isaiah 53. He was hanging there, a picture of human injustice. Someone who had done no wrong throughout his whole life was being sentenced with the crime of blasphemy and treason and hung up on a cross to die as a criminal. Complete injustice. He had been hounded by the authorities and by the, by the leaders of the Jews for three years. And now it had culminated in this. He hung there on the cross like a criminal with his enemies all around him. His friends were nowhere near. They stood at a distance. They would not associate themselves with him. For those who looked at him there on the cross, he must have been the most pitiable, pathetic, hopeless person around. 
mere days before he had been celebrated as he rode into Jerusalem as a king. And now he is being killed as a criminal. The words of David in Psalm 31 are so fitting for him. As David had spoken of the suffering at the hands of his enemies, the words of our Lord relate with those words, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in, my, in trouble. My eyes waste away with grief. Yes, my body and my soul, my life is spent with grief. My years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach to all my enemies and especially among my neighbors. And I'm repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me flee from me. Our Lord Jesus Christ lives those words of David. But yet, he knew why he was there. He was there in obedience to his father, in submission to the will and the eternal plan of God. He was there according to the plan of God. And in the midst of all his suffering, as death moved closer, then he cried out also, taking upon his lips the word of David in Psalm 31, a cry of confidence and trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father. That's amazing, isn't it? In that moment, he's just experienced the rejection and the wrath of God. He's called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now he says, Father. What an incredible expression of trust. The Father had had left him. But yet, he trusted him. In the most bizarre and unfathomable moment in history, in the most brutal and excruciating pain, Jesus says, Father. It's a kind of trust, a kind of dependence, a kind of love that we will never fully comprehend. It's a kind of trust, dependence, and love that we only can grow more and more to understand, but never completely But yet, because Jesus Christ could call God his Father and could put his trust in him, we can begin to understand it. In our most painful and trying circumstances, we can come to God and cry, Father, Abba, Father, we're children of God. We are given full rights of sons because of Jesus Christ. Because he made it possible on Good Friday. Because he called out in trust Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said that, he gave up his life. Luke says, having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus gives up his life, gives it over for the sake of his people to his Father. In the past, the high priest would come with the life of the sacrifice, but on that day, the great high priest gave his own life. And he atoned perfectly, completely, and wholly for the sins of God's people according to the plan of the Father. How many of us could even begin to do what Jesus did? How many of us would bear through suffering? 
even if it was God's will. How many of us do endure that path of, of suffering and pain, of ridicule and rejection, just for the sake of obedience to God? We have never experienced anything close to what Jesus experienced on the cross, and yet all of us have at different times given up. We've given up on friends in those circumstances, we've given up on ourselves, and we've given up on God. And that's precisely why Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't because we have. We don't have to do what Jesus did because he did. Oh, it's true. We're going to have to suffer pain and persecution and trials as we follow Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear about that. The path of Jesus Christ is a path of suffering. But we will never have to do it as Jesus did perfectly and completely and in order to bear our sins. His suffering was final, complete, perfect. God does not demand atonement for us. We do not follow that path of suffering in order to bear our own sins. They've been paid for. Jesus has borne them. He was perfectly obedient to the Father because we cannot be. And we do not need to be because he was. The great high priest gave up his life for people who sin. He gave up his life so that we, sinful, selfish, greedy, immoral, slanderous, gossiping, weak, frail, proud people, would be able to live with God as a cleansed and a holy people. And so his death is astounding as a display, as a, a working out of the grace of God. And so as you can imagine, his death has some surprising and powerful reactions. After Jesus dies, Luke records the reactions of the bystanders. The first is the reaction of the centurion. He's described in all the the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, as well as Luke. And Matthew and Mark, they say, uh, he says, surely he was the son of God. Luke here has him saying, certainly he was a righteous man. What's striking about this is that the very first person to recognize what has happened, to praise God and to confess Jesus Christ, is a Gentile. It's not a Jew. The very first person after Jesus dies to praise God because of it and to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the innocent Messiah, is a Gentile. He's a foretaste, this centurion, of the things to come. Now there's one Gentile. There's going to be many, many, many more. And many today, aren't there? Throughout the world, all of us, included in the plan of God, be able to speak the words of this first Gentile who came to faith after the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. This Gentile was an outsider from God's purposes and plans, especially from the, the in the minds of the Jews. They thought they were God's people and God's promises ended with them. But this Gentile, who has no standing among the Jews at that time, recognizes immediately what Christ's death means for him. He praises God because of it. Because he's included. Because he, Gentile, an outcast, 
A sinner is precisely the kind of person for whom Jesus has died. And so he praises God. The second reaction is the reaction of the Jewish people, of the crowds there. When they see what has happened, the darkness, Jesus' final cry of unshakable faith, they're filled with grief and regret. That's what the the beating the breast shows. They go into an intense time of mourning. Suddenly, what has happened comes to bear on them, and they cannot bear it themselves. What have we done? He was righteous. He was innocent. And so they grieve and they mourn. And the question for them is, what kind of grief is this going to be? Is this a worldly sorrow that brings no change of heart and only results in death? That will ultimately result in their destruction as God carries it out. As he destroys the city of Jerusalem under the hand of the Roman armies. And finally at the last day. Or is this a godly sorrow? Is this a sorrow that leads to repentance? Will they be among those who hear the words of the apostle Peter at Pentecost. Who are cut to the heart because they put to death the son of God. And repent and believe that he is the Messiah that God had promised to his people. The third reaction comes from the woman and from Jesus' acquaintances. These were women that had been with Jesus for more of his ministry. They'll later come to find the empty tomb. Along with them are other acquaintances, we read. It's striking that at this point, Luke doesn't even call them disciples because they're not behaving like disciples at this time. He doesn't call them friends. They're simply acquaintances standing off to the side. They're all still with Jesus, but they remain at a distance. They've not left completely. And indeed, they will come back as Luke's narrative progresses. But for now, they stand at a distance. And so Luke forms the questions in our minds. How are these women, acquaintances, going to respond? The centurion has seen it. Will they see it? Will they realize what God has done for them? Will they understand why Jesus has died? Will they put their trust in him? The question that Luke raises for his readers is the question that he lays upon all of us, that the Spirit of God lays upon all of us as we come face to face with the death of Jesus Christ. What will your reaction be? Will you stand at a distance? Will you try to push it off? Will you not come to terms with what that death says about yourself and your sins and about who Jesus Christ is in bearing your sins on the cross? Will you believe or will you not? What does the death of Jesus Christ mean for you? The question remains there as long as Jesus remains in the grave. And yet we know that he didn't stay there forever. On the third day, according to the plan of God, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the suffering servant, the innocent one, rose from the dead because death cannot keep hold on an innocent man. He grows victorious over the grave, having fully accomplished all that was necessary for the, according to the plan of God and for the salvation of all those who will see what he has done and put their faith in him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.